Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sport, Shona Halson. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Vald Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest and most accurate way to measure hamstring strength in under 90 seconds. So the Nordboard gives the right information so you can make the right decisions for your players at the right time. So it's already in use by over half the Premier League uh, and dozens of other elite teams around the world. Uh, so the Nordboard testing system is the is on its way to becoming the gold standard for measuring and monitoring hamstring strength. So if you are interested in getting to know anything more about the Nordboard, you can visit Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com to find out more. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Train With Push, creators of the Push Band. So the Push Band is the first scientifically validated uh, wearable device to provide Objective insights into your performance in the gym. So using accelerometers and a gyroscope, the push band is able to use bar speed to regulate load and volume based on your ability in the gym on any given day. So you can use the push band to quickly establish uh, 1RMs with submaximal loads so you can plan with confidence. So the push band portal also allows you to create programs before entering the gym. Uh, to make change on the fly depending on how you are performing on that given day. So you can customize everything from target velocity ranges to differentiating velocities for warm-up and creating working sets and supersets uh, for yourself or your athletes. So if you do want to know more about Train With Push and the Push Band, get yourself over to trainwithpush.com. They also have got a great blog, so you can catch up with some guest bloggers such as Mladen Ivanovic and Dan Baker. So be sure to check them out at trainwithpush.com. Thanks for tuning in to episode 82 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Shona Halson coming from Queensland in Australia. So it fits the bill again for a, a very Aussie feel to the podcast recently, which has been great. So Shona kind of fills a a real selfish uh, agenda for me recently with my traveling to Australia. So it was great to get her on to discuss uh, everything from minimizing jet lag to compression garments to the use of electronic devices, uh, which which are going to impact on sleep, uh, the Fitbit, all different other bits of tech that have kind of come onto the market uh, recently. So it was a really interesting chat with Shona, uh, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. So again, like I said in previous podcasts, if you've got any feedback on this podcast or you want to recommend somebody to to, uh, to hear from in the next couple of weeks, just fire me a message on Twitter or, or, or email or whatever it may be. Um, and I, I really appreciate that in advance. So enjoy the chat with Shona and I'll speak to you soon. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Shona Halson, who is the Senior Physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sport. So welcome to the podcast, Shona. Thanks, Robert. 
so do you just want to give us a little bit of an introduction on, on yourself? So for anyone who hasn't heard of you, um, what you currently do and your background, your education, etc. Yeah, sure. So um, my role, as you said, is senior physiologist at the AIS. So I've been uh, with the AIS for uh, a little over 13 years. Um, so my, my role there is really around a combination of servicing and research. Uh, so the idea is that, you know, we, we look after the athletes in terms of um, servicing and testing and those kinds of things. But also there's a fairly strong uh, research component given um, the area that I work in, which is recovery, um, is, has uh, sort of not had a lot of research in the you know over the last sort of 10 to 20 years uh, so my role is really around uh, recovery things like sleep compression um, cryotherapy hydrotherapy uh, those kinds of things so is, is that always been a, a kind of passion of yours yeah, well, it was interesting because I actually did my PhD um, in overtraining um, in, in Birmingham in the UK. Okay. Uh, and so I, I was really interested in the fatigue side of things, but um, as I'm sure you know, uh, fatigue and understanding fatigue and why people become overtrained is is like the holy grail. Um, and so then I ended up started look, starting to look more at recovery. So, okay, maybe we can't understand fatigue um, on an individual basis as much as we'd like to, but maybe we can start to understand uh, recovery. So it kind of um, meshed in nicely the link between the fatigue and the recovery. So did you go on to work in the UK or just go straight back to Australia after your PhD? I actually went straight back. Yeah, I went straight back to Australia. So it just happened that a job at the AIS was advertised just as I was submitting my thesis. And the <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, job title was fatigue and recovery scientist. Mm-hmm. And uh, these jobs just don't come up very often. So um, I applied for it. Was lucky enough to get it, and was uh, was straight back to Australia. Very good. So we had a little ch- chat beforehand about my upcoming trip, which. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird because this will come out while I'm actually over there um, in Australia. But right, one th- yeah. one thing that um, one thing that I wanted to kind of touch on from a obviously a selfish personal point of view, um, but I think hopefully everyone will kind of find it interesting as well is is the um, situation with jet lag. Obviously, you guys um, you've got a six hour flight to get to the side of the country. We've got a couple of hour drive, um, so it's not as much of a, an issue for kind of guys traveling around the UK, but. There's obviously football clubs, rugby clubs who are playing in Europe um, and obviously traveling all over the place. So I just wanted to kind of get your um, take on how we may minimize uh, that jet lag. Yeah, it's a really good question. And you're right, you know, Australia is miles away from everyone else. So we generally do a fair bit of travel. Our athletes, you know, do a lot of travel, especially this year. And, and travel to Rio was definitely interesting um, from Australia. So we have spent a, a fair bit of time and effort trying to understand um, jet lag and what we may or may not be able to do about it. So it is, you know, there's not a whole lot of new things. You know, a lot of the, the basic things that are re- has, has been recommended for a long time still sort of hold true. So we kind of have a bit of a sort of a three-phase approach. So the first one is what you do before you get on the plane. And we're actually um, pretty big believers in not getting on the plane excessively tired. So I know what a lot of people do is they think, oh, I'll just, I won't sleep the night before or I'll go to bed really late. So then hopefully I'll sleep on the plane. Now, the small amount of um, research that we've done looking at sleep quality on a plane, it's it's very low. And most of our athletes are not flying business class. In fact, I would say all of them are not flying business class. So we know that when you actually sleep on the plane, the quality 
for most people is quite very low. Um, so to add, to have people excessively tired before they get on the plane, you can pretty much guarantee that when you get off the plane, you'll be, you know, three times as tired. So what we say is be as well prepared and rested as you can be before you get on the plane. Now, we know that's not always possible with athletes because quite often they do extra training before they get on the plane um, because they know they're going to miss, you know, 24 hours plus potentially of, of training. But trying to get on the plane in as good a state as possible. Um, then when you're on the plane doing, you know, the usual things that are recommended, you know, walking around when you're awake, um, there's a little bit of a debate now as to whether you sleep on the time zone, um, the destination of the um, the time zone of the destination or whether you sleep when your biological clock is ready to sleep. So, for example, um, Australia to UK or vice versa, as you're about to do, um, the optimal time when you should sleep to adjust to the destination's time zone might not match your body clock. So people say, well, should you sleep when um, your more body's more ready to sleep um, or should you sleep on the destination's time zone? And I think that de that depends on um, whether you um, whether your goal is to get over jet lag or whether your goal is when you arrive to be as good as you can when you arrive. So that has implications for when you may, um, may be competing. Um, so, but generally, you know, trying to sleep, if you're trying to minimise jet lag, trying to sleep on the destination's time zone when you're on that flight, um, you know, the basics like staying hydrated, wearing medical grade compression, um, you know, walking around while you're not asleep. Um, I'm, I'm really big on, you know, I take my eye masks, my earplugs, my noise cancelling headphones <laughs> and try to create my own little world away from all the other humans if possible. Um, and so just doing all the things that you can do on a plane to kind of be as comfortable as you can. Um, and then for us, the area that I guess we're spending most time now is is um, around light and the timing of light exposure when you arrive. So um, we know that the body clock is attached, is in the brain, attached to the back of the eyes. And the best way to really get into sync with the new time zone is to um, get light timed at the right time and avoid light at the right time as well. So um, we have we write plans for our athletes on, okay, when you land between 2 and 4 in the afternoon is the best time to get light. Between 10 in the morning and 2 um, is the best time to avoid light. So we'll, we'll write some guidelines on them so that they can use light exposure to speed up um, the resynchronization process as much as possible. So how so how are you um, how are you timing that light and and why are you timing it at certain times? Yeah, so it does depend on a few things. It depends on the direction of travel, um, the number of time zones crossed, etc. Um, but there are ways of calculating um, when the optimal time of light exposure should be. Um, there's actually a website and an app called Jetlag Rooster um, that. Um, people can go to and type in your destination um, and you know um, your you know how you're traveling and that will give you information on when to get light and when to avoid light so it's all based around um, basically your biological clock um, and jet lag and when you should ideally trying to shift because light has a very powerful role in melatonin so it's all about trying to block melatonin or drive melatonin depending on um, on the time of day so with the calculations that you can do you can Optimize um, that light exposure or light avoidance, um, and there's there's ways on that. You know, as I said, jet lag rooster is one of the ways that people can go to to calculate that. Great, great. Um, 
great information now. I'll be on it as soon as we finish. <laughs> um, so you mentioned melatonin there. Is is there any sort of supplementation that you you recommend your athletes to to be taking either before, during, or after? Yeah, look, melatonin is a really difficult one. Um, for, I know a lot of people like it and find that it works. And a lot of people simply just take it an hour before um, they go to bed at their at their destination and even sometimes before they leave. One of the problems though, so we have, there's a couple of issues. Um, with melatonin in Australia, the only pharmacy grade you can get is prescription. So that does mean that if you're if someone's going out and buying melatonin, it's usually from a health food shop or something like that where you really can't guarantee um, the quality. So you can't get it over the counter. Um, so there is a supp- supplementation risk, a, an adverse doping uh, risk. And um, the other thing is melatonin is really dependent um, on the timing of when you take it. So yes, a lot of people do find it effective just taking it one hour before they go to bed. In the, when they arrive, um, or even on the plane, one hour before they would normally be going to bed in the destination's um, time zone. Um, however, uh, if you talk to classical sleep scientists and people that really are heavily involved in jet lag and travel, there is a bit of a concern around the timing of melatonin because um, if you time it incorrectly, you can actually get it wrong. And some of the timing is all based around the lowest point of your core body temperature. Uh, and so it is possible um, to to actually, you know, not use it correctly. Um, and a lot of people do like melatonin as a sleep aid, um, so just using it normally. Um, and the only issues around that are if you wake up in the middle of the night, if you've been travelling and you're jet lagged, you know what it's like. You wake up and it's two a.m. and you are ready to go, and you think I am not going to get through today if I do not go back to sleep. Um, and so some people might want to take a melatonin then to help them back to sleep, but that timing of that melatonin could be very wrong in that instance. So uh, it's all around the timing. Uh, it's all around trying to, um, you, you know, obviously use it around around bedtime as much as possible, um, but also being a little bit careful on the type of melatonin that you have and, and where you get it from. I know in America you can get pharmacy grade um, over the counter, but other places it's, it's, it's different. So another thing you touched on there, which is um, which I want to discuss um, on a kind of broader sense, but with compression garments, um, what, what's the kind of, I mean, you say, you say medical grade, um, how, how does that differ to what you may, like you say, may buy in a, buy in a sports shop or online or, you know, one of the popular brands? Yeah. So the medical grade compression that we um, that we tend to recommend for travel, um, they some of them may actually be quite similar to some of the garments that you buy um, from sports shops. Um, but the thing about um, the medical grade compression is in Australia we call it TGA Therapeutic Goods Association. So they've been approved um, as um, as a means of helping to reduce deep vein thrombosis during travel. So and we recommend a grade two or a class two, um, which means they've, they've got a fair bit of pressure, but they're not, they don't have a super amount of pressure uh, and compression because you don't actually, if you have too much, you can actually cut off the circulation a little bit, you know, not totally, but a little bit. Um, and they also, one of the important things in it is they have um, they have the, the sock or the feet, the foot in it. Um, and because what we often see sometimes with people who wear just um, any type of compression that might finish at the ankle is that if it's not fitted right, um, the ankle uh, where the um, the fabric finishes at the ankle can actually act like a tourniquet. So it can actually um, 
restrict blood flow. So that's why we like when we recommend um, travel garments that we um, that they have the at the whole complete foot in it, so that you've got less risk of cutting off or restricting any circulation um, around the ankle. So we do recommend, you know, if our athletes travel with um, with compression socks, um, especially anything really over two to three hours. Um, so you know, if we're traveling across the country or um, or sometimes even a little bit across the country. <laughs> then we recommend um, that they wear the medical grade compression. Mm-hmm. If, if you were to kind of go off the shelf, is there any particular brand that you've, you've come across that are, that are very similar to the medical grade garments? Yeah, so we have a research and development partnership with um, Two Times You. Um, they're an Australian company, um, but they're now available. They're available worldwide. Um, they do make a travel sock, a recovery sock, and a, a performance sock. Um, and the the travel sock does have the full foot in it. It's quite a nice. Um, it's quite a nice fabric as well. So, um, we that's one of the the companies that we have a research and development association with. But you can get. Um, you know, medical grade compression from a lot of chemists and pharmacies um, and often at airports as well. They will sell some kind of um, travel sock. So how has that kind of technology developed over the last couple of years? Has it, is it kind of come on or is it – are people yeah. pushing boundaries when it comes to that kind of thing? Yeah, I think when it comes to general compression, um, maybe maybe not so much the travel – compression you know that's been around for a long time it's sort of come from the um you know the venous insufficiency medical world anyway so that's kind of been around for quite a while but general compression yeah i think it's it is moving i think there's now you know there's been some research done now about wearing it you know during performance versus recovery um and there's also now more of a kind of tailoring to um different body types so um for example, you know, you look at swimmers, broad shoulders, no waist, long arms. Uh, that's a very different fit um, to, say, potentially a, you know, a rugby league player, or rugby union player or something like that. So I think now will be more the, – the area for the future will be around um, making garments specific for athletes and different body types and trying to optimise that pressure in different places. So, you know, making sure that the, the compression is around the, the, the muscle areas, um, et cetera, for different, yeah, for different body, body types and, and body compositions as well. Cool. So just to kind of move on to a bit more of the, the kind of sleep um, side of things, mm-hmm. yeah. I just wanted to ask you about uh, obviously the the kind of emergence of activity trackers that are mm-hmm. uh, that seem to be everywhere, all over the TV and yep. magazines and things, mm-hmm. um, and just get, kind of get your your take on them really, and and what your mm. kind of experiences of yep. of not just the kind of the technology itself, but athletes using them yep. um, in mm-hmm. the field. Mm, sure, no, that's a really good question. That's a really it's a really hot topic because there are lots of different. Um, you know, measuring devices that that are coming out now. So I think the first thing that's most important is that gum, uh, any type of tracker, if um, it's not, if you're not measuring brain activity, you cannot accurately 100% say whether you're in REM, non-REM, deep sleep, light sleep. Um, and so we still, you still see apps that say you've had this much deep sleep. Um, and you know, maybe there's some kind of correlation um, between movement. Well, there is a correlation between movement and the different phases of sleep but to really 100 be able to be able to say whether you're in REM non-REM deep sleep phase 
one, two or three, you really need to be measuring electrical activity of the brain. So that's the full polysomnography that you have in a sleep lab. Um, so that's the first thing I always, um, I always look at. The second thing is any tracker is only as good as its algorithm. Most accelerometers are pretty, you know, an accelerometer is an accelerometer. I mean, yeah, there are diff slight differences, but the algorithms that they use to detect whether someone is awake or asleep is, um, that's the big thing. That's, that's the thing that will make it a good, a good tracker or a bad tracker. Um, the, um, and a lot of places or companies who have made these devices, for obvious reasons, aren't going to share their algorithms. Hmm. Uh, and so, therefore, we don't really know how good they are or not. Um, and so, the, unless they've really compared their tracker to polysomnography, so they've compared it to the gold standard, it's really difficult for us to be able to say, yeah, this is something that you should go out and use. Now, having said that, if the if the device you know is um, is reliable and they're, they're just looking the the athlete is just looking at change over time and they're being reasonable about that change so they're not going oh one night I slept this my device is showing me I slept two hours um, and freaking out and then the next night you know freaking out over something else I um, mean you know, if, if they're understanding that it's a process and they're looking for big changes over time well maybe there's some educational benefit of of tracking their own sleep. We certainly wouldn't use most of these devices or we wouldn't use them for research purposes at all. Um, you certainly wouldn't get anything published with the majority of the, the wearables that are out there. Um, so I don't have a, I don't have a problem with athletes using, you know, so, you know, it's, some of the more common examples, I say the Fitbit, they're pretty popular. So I don't have a, a main, a major issue with athletes using that as long as they understand that um, you're looking for, you know, fairly big changes. Um, don't compare yourself to somebody else. Don't, com which a lot of athletes do. They they <laughs> say, oh, how much sleep did you get, and how much deep sleep did you get? Um, but the other thing is the way that we approach sleep monitoring is we use. Um, sort of more scientific devices um, that have been compared to um, to polysomnography. And we'll come in for a couple of weeks and we'll do a two-week block of monitoring. We'll give them individual feedback and we'll sit down with the athlete and say, this is what was good about your sleep. Um, this is what you could tweak to be a better sleeper. And then we'll kind of let, leave them alone for a little while because um, – and, and then we might do some follow-up down the track if we, think, um, if we think they need it. But one of the things about sleep is that stress and anxiety are – super closely related to sleep. So if you've got an athlete that's a bit obsessive, um, they're super interested in the data from their watch, um, they can look in the morning and go, wow, I only had two hours of deep sleep, which may be completely incorrect. Uh, and then think, oh, well, I'm not going to have a good training session today or go up to a coach and say, mm, I'm not quite sure how well I'm going to go today. I'm pretty tired. Didn't have a great sleep last night. Um, so people can get obsessed about their sleep. And so that's where I'm a, I have some concerns about athletes tracking their sleep with these devices all the time, especially when you have a device that may not be accurate. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a there's a balance there between education, give, getting getting them thinking about sleep and 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 having athletes understand that it's important, which is is important in itself, um, and then making sure that they're not getting too obsessed over it and understanding that no one sleeps perfectly every night. It's okay to have the odd bad night here and there. That's just totally normal. Your performance is probably not going to be affected unless you have, you know, three or four nights of pretty bad sleep. And even then, it's usually just your perception of effort that changes rather than your physiology. So don't get 
too hung up about it and don't get too obsessed about it, but know that for overall health, well-being and performance and, you know, over a long period of time, you want to get as good and consistent um, sleep as possible. So, so is there any uh, devices out there that have been compared to the, the gold standard? Yeah, there's a couple. There's um, We use the Philips Respironics um, watches. Uh, so they are around, I'm trying to think of what it would be in pounds, uh, probably about 800 pounds per watch okay. uh, plus the software on top of that. Um, there's, uh, that's Philips. There's also a company called Fatigue Science. Um, they do mainly uh, consultancy type work, so um, they're involved in the assessment and the and the analysis. Whereas the the Philips, you just buy the watches, buy this, buy the software, and and you're off. Um, so they're they're kind of the main. There's a couple of others, but they're kind of the major ones that we've used in the past. Um, and then obviously, all, there's a lot of new ones, new devices coming out on the market a lot cheaper. Um, but yet, until we see sort of the published data on those and, and how they do compare, we kind of steer, we definitely steer clear from a research perspective. Mm-hmm. So kind of keeping on the um, the tech and how it how it may affect you, how is I mean, it's, it's something that's obviously talked about a lot just because of the way things are going with um, phones and what you know the kind of things mm. you can do you can find things you can do on them. But what what actual yep. effect does does that activity on your phone? Um, yeah. Not just during before you sleep, but throughout the day. Um, what yes. what could what what could it do to you for you, for your sleep? Mm. Yeah, great great question. And I think for a lot of the aged athletes that that I deal with and that most people deal with, uh, that it's it's a real it's a real issue. It's a real concern. Um, so there's a few reasons why it can be a problem. It doesn't have to be a problem for people, but if there's a few reasons why it can be a, a problem. So the first thing is, as I mentioned earlier, light is um, um, very important for shifting your body clock. So uh, if you've got light from these devices, and so we're talking, you know, t- computers, um, phones, iPads, you know, things that are fairly close to the individual. You know, a TV at five meters is not such an issue, but the devices that are very close. So that light is actually stimulates the body clock and potentially can decrease the release of melatonin because the light's saying, well, there's no, you know, light is daytime. Um, we're stimulating the body clock. Let's let's stay awake. Um, so there's a there's a potential direct effect of light. There's also the fact that most of the times that there are athletes are on the phones, it's not just you know reading, uh, you know news websites. It's more than likely um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and the problem with those things is that they're interactive, and so it means that for a lot of athletes they may post something and this is just doesn't go for athletes this goes for you know most people on social media you know if you're going to post something most people are like oh well you know I wonder who's going to respond to that and what they'll say and how many likes I'm going to get and blah 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 so the problem with the um the social media is for me it's the interactive content of it so if you're just screening through and having a look um yes you're getting the light effects but that's different to if you're posting something and potentially um waiting waiting for that kind of interaction um, the other thing that happens with when people are on their phones is it just steals time. And all of a sudden, you know, it might be you might go to bed at 9.30 and then next thing, you know, you, you're looking at things and next next thing it's 11 o'clock um, at night. And it just takes away time. It's just a – and, you know, when most athletes have to get up at, the, at a fairly 
normal time in the morning. Not like morning times are often something that you can't be changed because of training times. The thing that you can influence is the time that you go to bed. Uh, and so, of course, um, if you're chewing up time on your phone, then um, that can also be be a problem. So, yeah, it is it's one of those things where, where we try to encourage athletes to take the phone out of the bedroom. If you're going to do your social media and those kinds of things in the lounge room, you know, do it before you actually go into the bedroom. Hop mm-hmm. in the bedroom and that's the place for sleep. Um, but most people use their phones as alarms. Um, they don't want to put it on flight mode. You know, they don't want to, you know, be detached from it in any way, shape or form. A lot of athletes actually leave their phones on um, and that creates what we think is like an on-call effect. So if you think of, um, you know, doctors who are on call and they have their phone on because they're just waiting because their phone may ring for an emergency, that's the same kind of thing you know athletes have their phones on just because people want to be connected there's this FOMO fear of missing out so everyone wants to be connected so it's kind of like the perfect storm um, when it comes to things that can influence sleep in a negative way. Mm -hmm. So how does that I mean that's just kind of just just before you go to bed how can been in that kind of social media um, world hours before you go to bed how can does that have a a very similar effect to the kind of fear of missing out the kind of anxiety of you know who's going to reply to my text or Mm -hmm. tweet or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be does that have a a similar effect you know throughout the day and that and been involved in that world um we don't think so as much it seems to be you know to really talk about the power down hour so lights low technology away in the hour before you go to bed now i know that most athletes are probably not going to do that um so i sort of say half an hour to an hour if they can um you know take the phone away and especially around competition you know olympic games um when there's that much media there's fans engaged um you know and it's obviously up to the sport how they decide to deal and manage with manage that but um taking phones away you know the night before a competition or and and doesn't have to be taking phones away just just you know responsible use of it so um really in that hour before you go to bed need that that kind of wind down time and so um it's like if you've had a massively stressful day and you come home from work and it's late and it's just been you know busy busy stress day and someone says right you need to go to bed straight away and fall asleep you're not going to fall asleep straight away you need that wind down time and so it's like athletes after a competition or a late late night game need that kind of downtime um, and that wind down time before they can sleep and if you've got some stress associated with using your phone um, you need to take that away as well very interesting so I, I just want to move on a little bit to kind of post-competition or, or post-training um, and looking yeah. at looking at um, cold water immersion um, yep. and just just how the the kind of maybe thinking's changed has thinking changed is it have things progressed with regards to with regards to that side of things for recovery yeah, look, there has been um, over the years, you know, I guess over the sort of 13 years that I've kind of been at the AIS, I've definitely seen it. There's, there's a shift. Um, 
However, I think it's, um, you know, people want the black and white answer. It's like low carb, high carb. You know, they just they just want, and it's never black and white, it's always grey. Um, and so for me, um, there it really does depend on the type of athlete that you're dealing with. So if you do look in the literature, there is, you know, a couple of studies, a couple of them really quite good that show that there may be a blunting of adaptation following strength training um, while using cold water immersion. Um, now, some of the you know good papers, good people um, who've done the research, but some of the problems with it are, are their individuals training twice a week. Um, now, that's not what we deal with. Um, you know, if we're working with heavyweight rowers, they sometimes they've got three sessions a day um, on water, gym on water, or on water erg gym session. You know, and so it, it's very difficult for us to go. Well, what we what that paper has shown in athletes who are training or in individuals who are trained training twice a week is very dif difficult for us. So there's really two sides to the story. And like I said, it's not black and white. But one side is okay. Maybe you can dampen adaptation, um, because don't you want you know fatigue and don't you want inflammation? Isn't that part of the the overall adaptation supercompensation process? On the other hand, there is well, if I'm an Olympic athlete and I'm training two, three times a day, um, I need to be able to get every single thing I can out of each of those sessions. Add that up over four years. Maybe I'm training more. Maybe I'm doing more. Maybe um, I'm adapting more because I'm less sore. I'm less tired. Uh, or maybe I'm just more efficient in my training, so I can I can do um, you know the same amount of training for less um, energy expenditure, whatever it is. Um, so I think there's those kinds of two sides of the story. But I think it's also really important to consider what sort of athletes are you dealing with. Um, if you're dealing with professional footballers who are playing every week or if you look at, you know, in the case of, of soccer slash football in the UK, you know, maybe three times a week. Um, you know, these guys, you want to minimise their risk of injury. You know, there's a whole lot of things that are going on. And so, you know, for these guys in season, you probably want to throw as many recovery strategies at them as you can. Um, if you're working with swimmers who – um, don't have the impact or the contact. Um, you know, they're they're in a water medium. You know, can you you can probably push these guys a little bit harder without recovery. So maybe in um, in long in blocks where they're doing some you know some of their base training, maybe you don't give them any recovery, but you throw it at them in competition because I think the the studies and the um, the reviews around acute recovery are pretty strong. So from a day to day to day basis, they're they're pretty good if if you do recover right. The question now is over the longer term. Um, so I think it's all about, yes, in to me, in competition, recovery is a no-brainer. How you periodize it, like we periodize training and we periodize nutrition, comes down to the type of athlete that you're dealing with, when they're competing, do they have muscle damage, are they some an athlete that's susceptible to injury? So um, there's a lot of things that I would think about before I said, oh, hang on, I read that paper and it says that cold water immersion is bad for, you know, bad for recovery. Um, we are probably a little bit more conservative than we were in the past and if I was going to take recovery out of someone's program, it would probably be around strength training just for, um, just to be, just to be cautious. Um, but then I think it's also really important to monitor the athletes, um, understand their subjective responses, how they're training, those kinds of things. So you can look back and you go, hang on, we took recovery out there and they slept worse and they were 
what they had they were sore and they're more prone to injury. Or you can look back and go, hey, we took recovery out of that, and look, they actually uh, went better over. Uh, they actually got better fitness gains in the in their base training block. So um, I think yeah, it's very individual, and it really um, it's there's no black and white, and we really need to monitor the athletes and understand them uh, and understand the ind- on, the, on an individual basis as well as to whether you give them recovery or you don't. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of touched on my my next little uh, little point there, and that was does does cold water immersion kind of favour a certain uh, method of training? So, for instance, strength training over over a um, you know tactical and technical work. Yeah, really good question. And there's only been a couple of studies that have kind of looked at that. Um, and Joe Vale, who's one of my PhD students a uh, number of years ago now, she looked at that. So she, she compared different types of recovery after. Um, so one was cycling, so 90 minutes of sprints, um, in, in like interval training over, you know, five days. Um, and in, for that particular study, cold water immersion was better than, than the contrast and better than hot water. Um, then she did another study with a lot of eccentric damage. So they were doing leg press and we had a winch so that they were only doing the, the lowering um, section, um, which was pretty nasty. <laughs> um, but for, in that case, the hot um, and, co- and cold, so the contrast water immersion was was better so um, but that's really some really kind of the only work that's that's really been done there but I think there's some benefits so there's really um, in, in an acute sense cold water immersion can be really good for obviously dropping your um, core temperature so um, and we know that the body likes to you know speeding up recovery if you've got a high core temperature is it all around re- reducing that core temperature um, cold water immersion can also obviously influence because um, it influences your body your, your core temperature and your skin temperature that may also influence your sleep because we know sleep and core body temperature are, are linked um, so there's other ways that potentially you can use a recovery and use cold water rather than just you know immediately post-exercise for a, you know, anti-inflammatory effect for, per se. So there's there's other ways that you could, could use it and time it. Um, and there is a, you know, there is a bit of a, a lot of athletes who do high-intensity afternoon sessions um, or, or higher sort of neural activity kind of sessions do report that they like the cold water immersion, but there's not a lot of science to actually back that up. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, just one last thing before I um, before I let you go, and that was yep. kind of tying tying nutrition into the whole. Well, the, the mm. last thirty five minutes, um, and kind of, <laughs> yep. kind of linking that with with its effect on on sleep with regards to its timing mm-hmm. um, and it, and its type, really. Yeah. Yep. Look, that's a really good question, and we've just finished a big research project on it. We don't, unfortunately, we haven't um, fin- at, finished analysing the data, um, and um, you know, I sorry, I can't share uh, a lot of the information. But um, if you look at the existing literature, and it's not in athletes, it's just in in the general population. But there has been a bit of work around trying to optimise um, either sleep onset, so helping people fall asleep quicker 
and or um, sleep quality, so people sleeping better when they are asleep. And so there's things like tryptophan, um, diff, um, different proteins. Um, there's been some work to show that high GI carbohydrates um, can be have a positive influence on sleep. Um, and there's and then there's certainly research out there on different types of you know herbal things. Um, and so what we what we're trying to do now is come up with something that you can um, help sleep but also maybe even help overnight recovery in terms of muscle repair. So um, there's, there's not a huge amount of information out there um, and a lot of the things that you can get at health food shops, you know, they have the valerian and those kinds of um, those kinds of products in it. But looking at things like – actually, if you look at, you know, milk, so just the, you know, people say, you know, have a glass of milk before you go to bed. Um, it has, you know, a pretty good um, amount of the, the proteins and the carbohydrates um, that you would need. If um, And people often say warm glass of milk, especially if it's cold, um, if it's hot. So we're kind of used to in Australia more heat, hot weather than <laughs> cold weather. So we'd probably have a, a cold glass of a cold glass of milk. So um, sometimes the really simple things um, that, you know, the old wives' tales, um, actually turn out to be true. So is, is there anything regarding timing, timing of nutrition with regards to sleep quality or sleep duration? Yeah. Yeah, look, um, there is a little bit of information around the high GI carbohydrates and that can be around about the four hours before bed. Um, but really it's it's such early days that it would be very difficult to you know, say hard and fast. This is this is what you should have, what you should have, and when. Um, there's a really obviously a balance between you know you don't want to go to bed too hungry and you don't want to go to bed too full either because that may um, just influence your comfort and and have difficulty in sleeping. We do know as well that, um, you know, if you're trying to restrict your body, you, you know, your intake and you're, you're trying to lose weight, then you don't want to have too much um, before you go to bed, um, too many calories before you go to bed. Um, and we also know that a lot of athletes get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Um, because they've just drunk too much before they go to bed. So, you know, they've trained in the afternoon. They probably haven't drunk enough um, fluid or as much as they should have. So then they get home and they drink, drink, drink and end up, you know, going to the bathroom all night. So um, while there's, you know, certain, you know, studies out there that have shown, you know, high GI carbohydrates four hour, two to four hours before bed, you know, those things, we also have to incorporate that into the overall, you know, what else are they eating? What's their um, their intake like? What, you know, what are their goals in terms of their body composition? Um, and then overall, how may that influence, um, how might that influence their sleep? Cool. Well, that's been really, really interesting. And I actually got a message of the day saying uh, we really appreciate the Australian feel you've got to the podcast. So, Shona, you've just added to that Australian feel with another another good Australian guest. So, thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, where, where, where can people uh, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on? Are you on Twitter, Facebook? Oh, uh, yep. I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm just Shona Helson. Um, just, just me. Yep, I'm on Twitter. So, yep, that's my that's my main kind of social media, which I keep off before I go to bed, mind okay. you. But that Absolutely. is my main Absolutely. form of interaction. Needless to say. Okay, well, um, I'll, I'll let you go and just and just thank you again for um, for getting up for me to uh, well to have a chat. And we'll uh, uh, enjoy we'll, your trip. We'll keep in touch. I will enjoy my trip. Thank you very much. And I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be listening back to this to get, keep some, uh, 
get some information. Get like tips. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much, Jonah. Speak to you soon. Bye. 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 Thanks for tuning in to episode 82 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I hope you enjoy the chat with Shona. And I just want to, before I let you go, say a massive thanks to both sponsors today, which are Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, and Train With Push, makers of the Push Band. So I hope you got a lot from the episode with Shona. I, I, I definitely did, um, with a with kind of personal agenda on the cards uh, at, the, at the time of recording. So I hope you enjoy the chat with Shona, and I'll speak to you soon.